0: So, none of us imagined at the beginning of the year that the World Health Organization would be promoting digital payments over cash. And equally, none of us imagined that there would be common challenges and common opportunities in every single country in the world at the same time. But that's what we're facing right now.
1: Welcome to this episode of Banking On Air. I would encourage everyone who's listening at this point and to those in your circle to please go to Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any other service that you might use and search for Banking On Air on your favorite platform. Subscribe and stay with us on our journey. So today I am delighted to be joined by Joanne Dewar, who's the CEO of GPS, Global Processing Services. And Joanne has been with GPS since 2014. And I'm going to talk a little bit more about, let Joanne also talk a little bit more about her background. But I want to say that she is the CEO, but she's also a fintech inclusion activist. She's a promoter of women in fintech. She's an advisor to other fintechs. She's a judge. She's doing a lot of things in the space. And I am super thankful to have her with us today because within that busy schedule to make time to be on the podcast with us is fantastic. So, and GPS, Visa backed, award winning card processing firm, and you power some of the debit cards, for example, for many of the household names that we have spoken about ourselves, right? Revolut, Starling Bank, for example. But we don't often hear about you and about GPS as we are hit with the headlines from some of our other more well known fintechs in this space. So, maybe we can start by talking about GPS about your role, how you arrived there. So take us on that journey of what it is and how you got there.
0: Well, firstly, Helen, thanks very much for having me on this. This There's a great story to tell and to date, GPS has very much been behind the scenes. We describe ourselves as the tech behind the tech. So it's our customers who have been rightly grabbing the headlines for, you know, the amazing innovative fintech challenger bank solutions, e-wallet providers that are out there. But we've been that sort of reliable, configurable, steady pair of hands as a team and as a platform behind the scenes, making sure that everything works seamlessly so that they can focus on their consumer or or business experience. So that's really where we sit.
1: It's fantastic, isn't it? There's always an engine behind some of these things that are out in in the front as well. So it's great to be having you out in the front. We can be in our space a little bit guilty of thinking, we understand that what we're talking about. We understand the maybe the payments processing space, but we might have listeners who are not from our space directly or who are from another part. So maybe you can talk us through a little bit about what actually is payment processing. How does that
0: work? Yeah, sure. Our part of payment processing, we are an issuer processor. And so the way I describe that is that within uh, card payments, there's two sides to every transaction. There's the side representing the merchant, which is the acquiring side, and the side representing the the cardholder, which is the issuing side. Within both of those, there's the provider of the service to the actual merchant or the cardholder. And behind them, not necessarily then themselves, there will be an acquiring bank or an issuing bank. So there's a regulated entity that is holding the funds. Sometimes the FinTech has the, the license themselves, and Starling's a great example of that. And in but in many other cases, uh, organizations leverage the license that's held by another organization, and so many use the services of Transact Payments Limited, More Wand, Paynetics, uh, Wirecard Card Solutions. That is many in sponsors. So what then we are is a, a third party processing technology provider. So whilst the banks hold the any funds, we don't touch the funds, we're not the regulated entity, we do the technology processing the transactions, creating the cards, providing the API calls on behalf of the bank. And so that means that banks, whether it's the fintech that's already leveraging the, the bin sponsor, or whether it's a traditional bank that's wanting to provide services, they're able to leverage the capabilities of technology third party providers, which means that we can do all the heavy lifting, enabling the, the fintechs and challenger banks to focus on providing that hyper personalized experience for the end card holder.
1: So it really is the tech in the fintech right? Yeah,
0: very much the tech side of FinTech, yeah.
1: And as you were mentioning other names and we talked about different people that are using your services, why you? What will make them say, no, this is where I'm alighting, I'm going with GPS?
0: As of this last week, we are the leading emerging payments organisation, according to the Emerging Payments Awards, which is the main awards for our industry. So delighted to start there. But I think why we ended up being in that position is if we go back a few years to sort of 2014, 2015, our origins came from the prepaid space, which is where fintech has emerged from. And prepaid processing needs to be more sophisticated than debit or credit processing. And the reason for that is that the processing engine has to always be up because you can never let the card go overdrawn, so you can't do what they call stand-in processing, which is the platform disappears for a while, goes down for maintenance or something, and then comes back up, and you can catch up on the transactions downstream. So prepaid processing processors, by definition, have got that sort of added uptime capability. And we had built a platform that was super flexible and configurable, which meant that we were fully API-driven from the outset. We were fully tokenized from the outset, which meant that new fintech startups didn't need to worry about their PCI certification. They didn't need to worry about what their end product was going to be. They just knew that they wanted to go on a journey and we were able to support them on that journey. And so that's how things emerged. So then when the Challenger Bank race kicked off, we were actually at the time Chosen by Monzo and Starling and Revolut and Curve all in the same year, because really we were the only processor that had the functionality that they were looking for. And whether they were going into debit or prepaid, all of that features and functionality of being able to have a real time alert on your mobile phone to say that transactions just happened needs the platform to be up all the time in order to get that. And equally the extension of the api capabilities were then extended into the mobile app providing the card holder the ability to swipe on or off whether the card could work overseas whether the card could be used at atm uh, to reveal the pin all these features and functionality which all ultimately uh, web services calls to gps so we became effectively the equivalent of the intel chip inside and regardless of what the computer was or what it's looking to do we were the common factor underneath
1: That is, you know what, it's fantastic. And I'm learning as you're speaking and as you're talking, I'm thinking, we always encourage companies as they scale up to own a marketplace, to do one thing or one or two things and do them incredibly well and don't try and be all things for all people. And you have obviously nailed that space and then managed to make relationships with all these very high profile organizations. One thing I, I want to ask you, how does the relationship work? How does the partnership work when you're working with these, now they're not upstarts anymore, but they were a few years ago. Right. from the other side of being the corporate or being in that position of servicing many of them. How do you make that successful, that partnership relationship?
0: So we have a very deep partnership relationship with all of our customers, whether they're two-man startups, to tier one traditional banks. And because what we know for sure is every one of our customers is on a journey. And what they are looking for on day one, is not what they're going to end up with in two or three years. What they're wanting to do is Get up and running with something, and then learn and evolve, and get feedback from their customers. Understand which way the market's going, and whether it's reaching out geographically, whether it's uh, building, extending their their product suite. Everyone is on a journey, and what we have found, we've got an incredibly sticky relationship with our customers. You know, we're very fortunate that our customers just don't leave us, and that's because we're being able to go on that journey with them. If we take Revolut for one. Example. Revolut started with us when it was just Nikolai and Vlad. It was just two guys. And now we're working with them, not only across Europe, but we've got programs live in Australia, in Singapore, in Japan, in Canada. We're integrated with 10 different card manufacturers, four different issuing banks and both schemes. And all of that is running off a single global platform with a single API integration. And that's powerful. Now if we take the other end of the spectrum, we were the processor behind RBS's bow. And so for that, totally different scale of organization, you know, Mark Bailey was branching out to be able to create a challenger bank from within the megalith that is RBS. And in that relationship, you know, Mark was very clear with me. He said don't treat me like a, a traditional bank. Talk to me as you would any other FinTech. We want to learn from you. GPS is the one that has launched 250 programs. We want to learn from you and what typically goes wrong, where are the learning points, what the things that you have to get right before go live and what can you tweak afterwards. And and so that experience is genuinely what people are looking to gain from us as well.
1: It's interesting, isn't it? When you hear about, as you, you mentioned, Revolut, Starling, Monzo, Curve, there is regulation and it's a heavily regulated industry behind and people's money is at stake. And I think sometimes the general public just disassociates the fact that you need that experience and in this type of an environment so that everything does go right or you can correct it quickly if it's gone wrong.
0: No, You're absolutely right and we are very fortunate particularly here in the UK that our regulators the the FCA and PRA have been 100% behind fintech and it's really the primary reason that, that, that fintech sort of has been quite as successful as it has been in the UK relative to other countries but even with the regulators we're still on a journey With them. And from a GPS perspective, whilst we sit outside the regulatory perimeter, we do lean in towards the regulators. We have active conversations supporting their understanding and working tightly together to be able to continue to innovate safely. And I think that's the sort of the key part from all of the issuing banks perspective, the bin sponsors, they have a very tight grip and knowledge of the regulation. And actually, they provide that level of protection to ensure that sort of the brand new fintechs are operating within the rails appropriately. And you again, you remind me, there have been times
1: where I think in the past, maybe this couple of years ago, where you'd see oh, payment processing has gone down on something, whether that was Revolut or something else or one of the other companies. What does it mean when payment processing goes down. Is that what you were describing before where the platform wasn't on if they were, were in a different system where it wasn't up and functioning? So
0: platform processing can go down for any number of reasons and that can hide a host of different causes. Really we're working with the end customers, with the schemes in order to make sure that you've got resiliency at every single stage so that you can get as close to 0% downtime as possible. One of the things that was particularly challenging as some of the first challenger banks got going was that in those cases, they were holding the balance. Whilst we're involved in that authorization decision-making, we were enabling them to make that final decision and pass the message through to us. It's really hard to picture how many the journey of a transaction between you tapping on a terminal and receiving the pass fail but genuinely that transaction has gone from the terminal to the acquiring processor into the scheme from the scheme figured out which process is operating on behalf of the issuer that's come to us in that case and then if the balance is being held by the fintechs, has got to go out to them as well and then all the way back through the chain again all within the six second ultimate timeout and so a lot of what was happening a couple of years back was that it was the fintechs who hadn't got the ability to respond in time or there'd be a sort of a backlogged up or something, and, and therefore the transaction fails, but you can get failure at multiple points, but you can also put in resiliency and, and alternate solutions at multiple top points. And I think as a whole ecosystem, over time, we've all got much better at creating that resilience and making sure that we can take care of making sure that the cards are always working. It's actually, it is astonishing,
1: as you said in six seconds. That is that is a lot of activity. And I hope that people who are listening will have a new respect for payments if they didn't have it before they, they started listening. Something unrelated to the process, Joanne, but related to you, that strikes me, of course, is that most of the people that I've met in my 30 odd years of career in financial services in banking or in payments have been men was what attracted you to this as a sector and as part of financial services and I also dig a little bit deeper on what it's
0: like to be a woman in a senior role in this space uh, big question so how did I get into this space I started my career as an IT consultant with Pricewaterhouse so that's what I went into after my degree in geography uh, so financial services IT project management was what I did for the first 10 years very light touch from an absolute tech perspective but enough to be able to play that middleman role between understanding customer requirements and then taking it to uh, developers so I was more kind of the analyst role and then the team leader and the project manager and program management's really where I ended up fintech was all a bit of an accident really but I think actually when you speak to a lot of people that was the case as a new industry it's pulled people from lots of of different directions and my rise to becoming CEO in many ways is very accidental I didn't expect that I would ever get this kind of opportunity in fact I'd taken very much a sort of a back step in my career in in stopping to have a family and my husband's career took precedence and I got into uh, fintech just on a part-time basis just helping out and just didn't anticipate that you know a new career and becoming a CEO of a private equity-backed company is ever going to be on my pathway so i'm very fortunate in that regard
1: that's fantastic and i love the way that you give back and and try an exemplar for other women in the space also i have watched interviews you've had and interviews you've done and how your sundays and you're preparing the meals and everything for your family you've got about you struck that balance haven't you of having to of, of wanting to do the things that you want to do in the work life I
0: think no balance is perfect but I think the the message that I've learned to get out there because there are so few role models who have actually done that break for childcare and have managed to come back. And so if you don't talk about it when you have done it, then people assume that, or well, you just obviously carried on all the way through. Um, and I realized that I was guilty of that myself. So when I first went to the sort of big awards dues and the big public events back in 2014, I remember very distinctly people say, how long have you been at GPS? And it's like, yeah, I've just been here six months. Oh, where were you before? And I would completely gloss over the fact that I hadn't been in the paid workspace for a number of years. And I would say, oh yeah, my original career was in consulting or last did this that and the other and I was completely glossing over things. But in glossing over it, you don't provide that hook that creates that conversation point for other people to think maybe you could do this. And even when you're having that conversation with men, it's helping them think about their wives, their sisters, their daughters, and everything else, whether it's inside fintech or outside. That's why I talk about it. There are so few examples that I think it's really important to be able to exemplify. And I think at this precise moment in financial services, where we're
1: seeing a lot of people being let go from a lot of our global financial institutions there will be people that are going to step out and they're going to reconsider their career moves and think maybe for example they want to work in some of the fintechs as well so maybe this is a time for people to have a time out as also and believe that they can have a reset point and another career that i think this is a A wonderful opportunity.
0: I think there's two things. Yeah, both the point for people to think that this is the point to step out, but also for those wanting to step in. I think post-COVID world, we've got a couple of fundamental changes. Firstly, this the rise of working from home is going to be a permanent thing, I believe. I don't believe that we we'll are ever go back to working the way we were. And I think that is hugely door opening for those that are trying to balance work with childcare, because I know that was part of the barrier to me previously, when you're trying to think, if I've got to do school drop off for nine o'clock and you've got me back there by quarter past three, then what can I do? Save working in a you know supermarket. So I think that is making a fundamental shift. I think the second thing that there's some new research coming out now is that leadership positions when you're remote working require a very different set of skills than leadership positions when you're sort of physically present. So it's much less about the sort of the gravitas and the machoism and it's much more about organisation skills, coaching skills and, and a bunch of skills that I think are more aligned with women generally. There's some research that's already been published by Northwestern University in the US and I look forward to seeing how all of that develops over time. But I think there is genuine opportunity for women in the longer term, even though I think in the immediate COVID impacts was that once the children were off school more often than not it was the the mum that took the back step.
1: Yeah there were a lot of people I remember saying to me they're working on 11 plus with their children and we were rescheduling meetings and doing other things as well. I have to say as one of six I could not have imagined my mother having to homeschool all six of us if that happens in my lifetime so I do put out a kudos to all the women out there as well. We've known that women contributing on senior positions contribute to the bottom line as well but But now there are other skills, as you say, being brought to the fore that are more generally in our gender. And we'll see how that pans out. And I love the fact that the teams at Vacuum partnerships matter to you and starting early and growing with the companies that you partner with and being that tech behind the fin. Because I think in fintech, we talk a bit too much about the hype of fintech and we ignore the tech a lot of the time, everything else gets bigger play. We, we should really look deeper than ourselves and, and remind ourselves what the other half of that word is, is also I'm grateful to have this conversation. And I think there'll be many people who have now learned a lot about the payment process in all its glory and in some of its failure, which I found fascinating as well because and i know sometimes people can be issuers and acquirers at the same time yeah. and so it gets very complicated and it's been wonderful to hear how you are powering some of our most well-known household names but we're actually now getting to understand more about what you're doing yeah and as we go forward joanna i know we talked about the home working and how that's going to change things do you think there's going to be something, we've been, payments have totally come to the fore mm-hmm. during all of this pandemic. Mm-hmm. If people weren't thinking about them before, whether you're at over 55 on PayPal making a payment or you're tapping at 45 pounds or you're whatever the mode of payment is that you're doing, I think now people are more talking about it outside of all our conferences. Do you think as we go forward that there'll be any particular technologies that will come to the fore or is there any anything that you see in our near and medium term future that we should be? thinking about?
0: So none of us imagined at the beginning of the year that the World Health Organization would be promoting digital payments over cash. And equally, none of us imagined that there would be common challenges and common opportunities in every single country in the world at the same time. But that's what we're facing right now. Every existing bank has recognised that they do need to do something to provide digital services. The the physical footprint is no longer relevant. The adoption of the, the smartphone is absolutely ubiquitous. And with the acceleration in the use of digital payments and the move away from cash, the financial inclusion agenda is is 100 times more important because there are still way too many people that are 100% reliant on cash for payments don't have access to proper financial services any form of financial services not let alone those that the statistics change as you say they haven't got access to full financial services or are going to be excluded at some point in their lifetime the numbers become absolutely extraordinary and their levels of exclusion are becoming absolute as opposed to uh, relative so Previously, we've talked about the poverty premium and the fact that it costs more money to pay for things with cash. Well, now we're talking about shops just saying, no, you can't buy if you haven't got a means of of tapping or ability to pay, let alone all the e-commerce side of things where, you know, you can't put a £10 note into your computer. So I think the financial inclusion agenda is the big thing to watch for. From my perspective more so than actually the technology used and i think within that we will see that the role of government and how they do the government disbursements of social care payments and that kind of thing is absolutely key to the adoption of digital channels in the same way as we saw say in the uk with the adoption of contactless the moment that things changed was with tfl and the underground and the ability to tap on the underground yeah you're right there was that moment and that created that change and i think on the financial inclusion perspective the moment is around how government engages with the digital payments and what that leads to in terms of adoption i think you're right and i think that we
1: had discussions around it with verify and with, with the national identity scheme which didn't really come to fruition or fulfill its promise Mm. so that you would have one way to to get paid but that wasn't dealing with where the payment went or whether there was a tokenized solution for example and I heard a very disturbing story from Peru where people were saying that people got COVID in the queue waiting to get the money that was due to them from the stimulus package because they were unbanked.
0: Well exactly and even here in the UK you've got the POCA account at the moment the post office card account But what you do with that is you go to an ATM, withdraw cash. You can't actually use it for e-commerce payments or or whatever. This actually putting in place the usable solutions in this regard is super important.
1: I read recently, and I'm sure you've seen it, that the Bank of England has been used by why the fact that there is cash, they're printing more and people, but it's not circulating more. And of course, we have to assume it's under the mattress And in times of fear and panic people often hoard the cash thinking mm-hmm. that this is something that will, will like they would gold uh, mm-hmm. going forward so i think they're trying to figure out why this is happening and what's the puzzle of more cash going out but not being circulated because people as you say are not accepting cash anymore now whether we're near to this cashless society or not, Sweden had a crack at it. And as we're all on the continuum, we'll see, but it's definitely been accelerated, as you say, by COVID. And if an industry point of view, there were any silver linings, I think people have now become much more aware of digital payments. As you said, with the challenger banks, it's great when when everything was just on your phone, but if someone dared to give you cash, you couldn't shove it into the phone, you had to go somewhere paypoint, post office, somewhere Mm -hmm. to be able to actually use it. And there are still generations and some people that are using other forms, be it a check that they're scanning or cash that they want to use. So we're not there yet in terms of that continuum being all about not using cash
0: yeah you're absolutely right and the key is that you can't let one side of things accelerate beyond the other moving towards a cashless economy society may be exactly the right thing to do but only when you've got all of the protection mechanisms in place such that cashless society is fully inclusive and at the moment we're far from it one of the things that why i'm sort of so interested in it is actually fintech holds so many of the solutions as financial inclusion because it's not a continuum between the included and, and the excluded. What you have is the included in the middle and the excluded multiple pockets of communities that are excluded for specific reasons that are each kind of subscale and complex but fintech's able to operate subscale and provide specific solutions whether it's dealing with identity whether it's to do with dealing with limiting the way that the payments are made whether it's to do with being able to provide supervision of payments there's loads and loads of different scenarios and there's fintech solutions for lots and lots of these already out there and it's just the case of being able to raise the profile and and get them more known about.
1: And I think this, as you mentioned before about the partnerships and how people work, there are a lot of solutions out there. It's not always easy to create the partnerships with the larger organisations you need to work with to enable and implement the solutions. So I think we've got better at it. I read today about the pledge that's come out, which is a voluntary pledge for large financial institutions to work with the fintechs. I will remain a glass half full kind of gal, but I've tried to get general and (laughs) commercial engagement with fintech and large organizations for years, so we'll see, but it it has to happen. We have to have this strong and more intimate partnership that you start at an early stage because we need to do some good with financial services and not just talk about it in the press. We need to actually see it happen. And and as we have, I think complexity has been one of the themes of our whole conversation.
0: It's incredibly (laughs) complex. And that's, again, that's where the partnership comes in. We're able to help people navigate that complexity because we've been there, done it. We've seen lots of different flavors. We've seen what works. We've seen what doesn't. And what we're looking to do is, you know, our our customers have an idea, they've got a solution, they want to get to market and we can help them figure out that whole, the things that they need in order to get that solution in play so we've looked
1: at tech complexity and how you help simplify that we've looked at the cultural complexity within our ecosystem in terms of gender balance and how everything is changing with the way that we work and what the future will look like and how we can simplify some of that so that we can extract all the good and and stop focusing on the need for quotas and to not have a level playing field. We've looked at the complexity of the relationships in terms of corporates and fintechs. And going forward, now we're looking at another complex situation. How do we genuinely secure inclusion and not widen the gap between the haves and the have-nots and just pay lip service to it as well?
0: Exactly right, yeah.
1: I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I'm sure that everyone who's joined us today has as well and I would roll well that remains to be to thank Joanne Dewar, CEO of GPS, for being with us on Banking On Air.
0: You're very welcome
1: thank you to everyone who's been listening and who joined us. We'll see you on our next podcast.